Hello. Wait, I should probably sit down. Hello, can you hear me? Can everyone hear me? Yes? No? Is that better? Dr. Eastwood, is that better? Okay. So I'm Ramel Pacheco. A lot of you know that. If you don't, now you know. Um, I learned that I was hosting this last night. So uh, here I am. So this is Late Night for the Planet. It's the only uh, talk show of, in Plattsburgh about the environment. Started by Charles Olson and uh, uh, Michaela Hendrick, as uh, Dr. Kurt Gervich stated before. It's a really amazing opportunity to meet new people, such as good old Samantha Beck here. And so tonight we're talking about media, storytelling, and how to talk about the environment and the issues that we face every day. Um, we have some fun games planned, as usual, and uh, we have some awesome guests, as usual. And uh, yeah, let's just get right into it. Uh, this is Samantha. You, Samantha, you want to want to say some few words about yourself? Do, do you want me to? I guess we have to go on script. <laughs> Studying environmental science and anthropology, join me in welcoming my co-host this evening, Samantha Beck. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So let's welcome our guest. He's a director of Plant Forward, a pioneering environmental news platform, leading the team and project since 2013. He has elevated Plant Forward into important global conveyor and digital platform that inspires and empowers a new generation of storytellers focused on environment, science, and sustainability. He has overseen five Planet Forward summits on environmental storytelling, bringing together world-leading journalists, content creators, corporate leaders, researchers, and college students in Washington, DC. He leads and organizes storytelling expeditions that have taken students all over the world and the United States, from the Amazon rainforest in Brazil to the Inside Passage of Alaska. He also had the honor of being part of the first intern class of the Obama administration, which was a dream job of good old Charles here. He has also helped me create a podcast episode about tobacco in China when we are in China. So please join me welcoming Dan Reed. Next, we have an inspiring individual with truly powerful storytelling abilities, making quakes throughout the world of environmental writing. Yesenia is an alumni from our very own SUNY Plattsburgh and senior staff writer for Earther.com. She focuses on environmental justice issues and is one of the few reporters covering the intersection where race and the environment meet. Yesenia was also honored as one of 20 Latinx fighting for our environment. Her articles widen the scope of environmental issues, usually including fantastic, fiery, and witty commentary. Basically, she's an all-around badass and an individual I'm very excited to have with us. Let's give a warm welcome to Yesenia Funes. I see uh, you got a green drink there. Very tasty. <laughs> 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 I have to speak extra loud into this mic. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you both for joining us tonight. Um, as you know, our society is aware of the climate change, of climate change and the climate crisis, and 
the surrounding impacts that it's been having on our society and everyday lives for the past decades. Um, in that time, we've seen in the environmental movement make great progress, especially in the progress of conveying stories and media and in communication. And you both work in media and communications uh, with the focus on, obviously, the environment. And the work that you've both done and contributed has, in my opinion, and I'm sure um, the Late Night for the Planet uh, team can also agree, has pushed the planet forward into a brighter direction. Um, so tonight, we're going to talk about your work, your environmental storytelling, media, and communications. And as Charles usually says on every Late Night for the Planet and Pod for the Planet episode, let's get into it. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. So both of you are pretty young, which is kind of conflicting considering kids yes. call me old. I, see, but I feel young because you and I are wearing the same shoes, which <laughs> this is probably more an effort of somebody you're, in their mid-30s trying to identify with you know, right. younger folk. You, you're also cuffing your jeans, which it I is. have to say, it's, you're pretty hip. Thanks. Yeah, and look, hey, Chuck's got his jeans uh, look at, rolled up there, too. Uh, raise a hand if, you're, uh, if your jeans or pants are cuffed. Oh, hey. <laughs> nice. We got a few up. Okay. We inspire each other. <laughs> That's what it's all about. All right, so Yesenia, you're fairly recent Plattsburgh uh, alumnus, right? Alumni, is that how you say it? Alumna. Alumna, okay. Uh, Dan Reed, you're obviously hip. Um, can you tell us yeah. about your first? Ex uh, wait, this is for you, Sunny. Actually, can you tell us about your first experience interacting with the environmental movement and what made you want to go into that line of work? Considering like the future is looking slightly depressing right now. Yeah, the future is looking very depressing right now. I'll be frank. I mean, when I first came to Plattsburgh, I was not very aware of the environmental crisis. I grew up in a you know, suburb of Long Island. We were just talking about this over dinner. Like I hadn't ever seen mountains <laughs> until coming up to Plattsburgh. But once I got here, I just started meeting a bunch of people that knew a bunch of shit that I didn't know about climate, about climate change, about environmental pollution. Um, and I knew very quickly when I decided that I would become a journalist that I wanted to do something justice related. I wanted my writing to affect change, I wanted it to be powerful, meaningful, but I mean that could be anything, right? But eventually I realized the severity of the climate crisis um, and I decided quite quickly that that was going to be my focus for my writing. Um, and then I picked up a second major and I met Kurt, it was my first class in environmental studies, it was intro to environmental studies. Um, and. I well, felt really welcome. Well, I was like, this what was dope. your second major? <laughs> uh, journalism. So I had journalism, okay. magazine journalism, and environmental studies. Nice, nice. Mm -hmm. um, so what story or projects of yours do you think has made the biggest impact? Oh, impact is always so hard to measure. I mean, I think that this is something journalists struggle with because do you mean which story was most widely read? Or is it the story that I feel uncovered like the most. Both. So I think one of my most viral stories most recently 
<laughs> we were talking <laughs> about this over dinner briefly. Uh, I wrote the story, the headline was Miami is fucked, and it was a very straightforward story on a report highlighting how fucked Miami is, um, and people were just so attracted, I think, to the headline. Um, the content itself was pretty straightforward and dry. Um, that I, I wouldn't say that that was like the most impactful story, though. I, I, I did this piece last year that I'm really proud of, um, where I uncovered that the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation had been pretty much fighting prison reform in order to keep incarcerated people on the front lines of wildfire fighting. Um, and I found internal documents that outlined all the ways that they were fighting against this. Kamala Harris, when she was um, the state attorney general, kind of spearheaded this. Um, and it was really dope because we found out that they had even implemented a raise for these incarcerated workers. Mm -hmm. um, but even a raise wasn't appealing enough to get more people to join the program because of just how dangerous it is. And who wants to be fighting wildfires and wildfires are growing more and more severe and scary right. in California. Right. That one didn't get read as much as my <laughs> Miami's fuck story, but. Well, that, <laughs> that sounds awesome. headline. <laughs> That sounds like really complicated. So I'm just wondering what was your process of like researching and writing about that story? Man, the research, uh, it's, it was probably like maybe a year's worth of filing uh, information requests, um, trying to work with the state to get me those documents. They were being really hesitant and reluctant working with our legal team to craft responses to them when they would try to give us like bullshitty documents. Um, they gave me a lot more documents that didn't have anything worthwhile and I'm still hoping that there is like more to uncover eventually in the general topic of incarcerated people on the front lines of the climate crisis, which um, I imagine is only going to grow as more and more disasters happen and few people want to actually do the work to stop them from happening because it's nitty gritty, dangerous, life-threatening work. Um, but it was just hours of filing documents, sending them to the state, going through the documents, reaching out to people who are incarcerated or who were incarcerated who were on the front lines of these wildfires. And finding people who have done the work is probably the hardest part. Like I can file FOIAs all day long, but finding the people to share their stories with me um, was really the, the tough part. And the story didn't succeed, I think, in conveying that part of the story as well. Um, but, you know, always trying to meet more people to share their Wh stories with wh us. What's the title of this story again? The title of the story? I think it was California is Fighting Prison Reform. Okay. I can't remember. It was like a very newsy title. Right. It wasn't, a, it wasn't all, a sexy title. All of, you, <laughs> all, all of you have to go read that, okay? It's an important story. I it really is. do encourage you all to read it. Wait, do I get to answer your first question about in, uh, what first time the environment? Yes. Okay. Because I have I have an important piece to that. You know what? I'm sorry. I have a voice. I'm sorry. That's okay. I know you. You have a very uh, you make your you make your presence known. Oh, if that's okay. if if I've learned anything from the great Dan Reed. Yeah, I careful. Uh, <laughs> no, but to be honest, I I think this maybe some of you in the room identify with this. I didn't know really that what I cared about was the environment. I think for a long time, for me, it was, uh, I just wanted to leave my planet in better shape than I found it. And I didn't necessarily equate that to environmentalism. To me, that was boy scouting. 
I was a wiener scout in high school, as I called it. I mean, it was not popular. It was not uh, a thing. Uh, in fact, my parents sort of pushed the scouting thing on me a little bit. Um, but in scouting, they, you know, basically tell you, leave your campsite better than you found it. For me, that's when I realized I actually gave a shit about the environment. And now that I'm a father, that's all I care about. All of my work I do and the people I work with is completely centered around how do I leave this planet in better shape than I found it? And I don't necessarily think that that's a heroic thing. I think that's a civic duty all of us should probably take on. Um, I never knew I would get that value from Boy Scouting, which mm -hmm. I didn't really value at the time, and now I do. That's a complicated topic, especially this week with the news <laughs> with Scouting, right? And, and, I, and I don't know, too, what I'll do with my son in terms of, uh, you know, my parents were not... I don't want to imply that they were super pushy, like, you have to do this, you know, but I'm happy they pushed me in that direction, and who knows what I'll do in the future with that. Right. But I think sometimes environmentalism and our own care for our own planet doesn't always come from the clearest source. And I think sometimes, I don't know if you experience this in your job, but, you know, because I care about the planet, I run a project called Planet Forward, sometimes I feel like, oh, well, I got to look the part. I should have long hair. Wear nothing but Patagonia. And look, I give a shit about the environment. Look at what I'm wearing. Look at what I'm doing. But I think it comes differently for each of us. I think it's sort of an important piece to acknowledge in, in this. And it's a great way to reach maybe people who don't know how much they care about the planet yet. So. I'm up here with my plastic straw in shame, <laughs> hoping that I won't get judged for it by the trolls online. No, we're already judging. Don't worry. <laughs> I have a follow-up question, actually, for you. Yeah. Um, you said I didn't know that you had... Uh, a son. You didn't know I had no, a son? I didn't know you had oh, a son. Oh, well, yes. I have a three-and-a-half-year-old. <laughs> He's awesome. <laughs> that's, not, that's not the question. So Go ahead. I can tell you more about him. Did you... <laughs> did, uh, did you having a child, like, change the way that you think about the future and, like, in, in the way of, like, environmentalism? Oh, 100%. We were just talking about this over dinner. I mean, I'm... In a way... I've sort of struggled with, in the sustainability and environmental movement, the question of how do we manage an intensely growing population on a hotter, crowded, resource-intense planet? And there was a point in time where I questioned, what's my responsibility as a citizen of Earth on doing the biologically you know, correct thing, I guess, which is reproduce? Um, but what's my responsibility in having a child and having, uh, I, I think that's such an intensely personal discussion. I don't necessarily know that I can enlighten everyone on it, but I will say as a father, I question this all the time with what is it going to be like for me who I will die, all of us in this room will die, right? We have to face our own mortality, but to leave a planet for those who are younger than us that's in this shape that is likely going to get worse. It's gonna be more crowded, it's gonna be hotter, it's gonna be, um, you know, we're gonna need more resources and we have less time to do it. So I'm thinking about that all the time and I don't know that that necessarily comes because of parenthood, but I think parenthood amplifies the, the ability to address it. Thank you. Yeah. 
So people with hard science backgrounds don't generally go into communications and aren't the best at communicating their science. For example, unlike Ramel here, I'm not very comfortable on stage. I'm very uncomfortable right now, actually. <laughs> Feels sweaty. We are too, don't worry. Palms are really sweaty. <laughs> Her palms are indeed sweaty. <laughs> so how do we bridge the gap and go, into, go about breaking down complex ideas into manageable elements for your stories? Is this for both of us? Yeah, for both of you, yeah. Well, I write, I write quite frequently in like scientific studies that when I read, I don't understand at all. Um, I think that the first thing is to talk to the people who do know the science, who know it um, so incredibly uh, well that they can communicate it to you in a way where you can then communicate it to the greater public. But for me, it's to not get, I try not to get mixed up in like the details of the science, because um, I don't think the, gen the general public is too interested in like the specifics. I'll offer some of the specifics that I think are valuable and just helping them understand how the science was done. But I think more important is just trying to share like what the point of the science is. Like what does this actually mean for you? Like if a glacier in Antarctica or the Arctic is, you know, crumbling into the ocean, what does that actually mean for you? Does it mean that your, you know, your coast is gonna go underwater? Does this mean that the greater Earth system, you know, weather system is going to change? I try to put it in perspective so that it's not just something that feels disconnected um, and confusing for people. But it's certainly something, it's probably what I struggle with the most in my writing is trying to simplify really, really complex science that even I myself struggle to understand because the science is always changing. There's always new studies coming out and what we knew yesterday is different than what we know today. I feel like you maybe are more big on the science and might have more to add on that, Dan. Yeah, I mean, as somebody who doesn't, I don't write, write daily for a publication, but I teach around this and I have experience in this and we practice it, but basically what we teach is how to put data into human terms, right, that we can relate to. I mean, anybody who was at the workshop earlier would know I get annoyed with the term gigatons. Like, what the hell is a gigaton? Does anybody want to offer it? I mean, I... I just recently would, would learned anyone, a better unit of measurement. A would gigaton? anyone in the, in, the, in the audience want to take a shot at that? Anyone know? It's a shit ton. All right. right. And actually, the best part is, we were, I was reading Eartha the other day, and they were talking about the amount of carbon in the atmosphere, and they simply just said, it means there's a shitload of carbon in the atmosphere. And sometimes that's the best way to measure it and, and explain it. But, you know, like a gigaton, uh, if, if anybody's read Hawkins' Drawdown, you know, they explain it as 400,000 Olympic-sized swimming pools worth of carbon. 400. 400,000. So even at that level, they've attempted to break it down. I can't sit here and honestly tell you I know what 400,000 Olympic-sized swimming pools looks like. The good news is I know what one Olympic-sized swimming pool looks like. So I can conclude it is a ton. It's a lot. So the point is, you know, in science, it's really difficult to put things into human terms when we're talking with numbers and scale that's this large. Um, and I mean, I think it's a it's a it's a tough piece that comes with the job, but it's part of the job, right? 
And um, if you're creative and you're a good writer and you're a good storyteller, you're f you will figure out clever ways to interpret that science in the ways that we can better understand. That's what I was going to ask next. Um, how are the different forms of media useful in communicating to people about the climate crisis and solutions? I'm a writer. I mean, I do video at times at work. Um, I think that every medium has its purpose. Video is cool if you're trying to convey something visually, right? Like if you want to show people what uh, cloud seeding looks like. I've done a video recently on cl cloud seeding and you want to explain this is what it looks like when a plane flies into clouds and sprays a bunch of shit into it so that people can force rain over their communities or as increasingly is becoming the case stop rain in their communities um, as places face like extreme weather and record-breaking rainfalls. Indonesia did this recently. Um, if it's visually appealing then a video might be really cool if we have like some really dope visual elements I think, I mean, I'm a big fan of words um, and just making something, especially if something's personal. A lot of our writing on Earth, there, we try to kind of let our readers get a sense of who we are. We can we do a lot of first person in our pieces, even if it's just like, well, I think, you know, like a quick sentence. Um, and I think writing is really helpful for that. Um, those are the two mediums that we mostly play with. We do do some like photo essays and like illustrations. Um, but I think it's also just about what the creator <laughs> does the best yeah. job at um, and what the readers and the followers have a greater taste for. Um, but it's hard. People are on the go all the time. People are on their phones. Um, and so there is this sort of push in media to, I think, become more like video heavy, which, quite frankly, I'm not a big fan of. But that's because, again, I write. So... For me, people need to read. <laughs> read, everybody. <laughs> um, but that's increasingly, I think, becoming less appealing to news companies, and they want to make these stupid videos that just like give you content very quick and spiffy. And I don't know that that's actually helping us convey anything any more clearly. That's my opinion, though. Well, I think as well that we're able to see different parts of the world we've never been able to see before because of, you know, not an ad here for Apple, right? But this technology, generally, that's in our pockets. I mean, the quality of the photography, video, and then if you think about it, no, at no other time in human history have we ever been able to do what any of us can do in this room, which is reach more people faster with more information than any other time history, right? So I think there are parts of this planet we've just been able to uncover in new and different ways we've never seen before because of this. So um, I think it's, it's almost less important now which medium. To me, that's not the question. Uh, to me, the question is which medium is the best way to tell the story in the most compelling way to reach the most amount of people? Sometimes it's photography. I'm a photographer, so I'm biased. On that, right? Um, but photography has been an, a critical piece to telling environmental stories. You know, National Geographic's history largely is built on the incredible photography we get to witness. Um, there's a reason why they have a hundred million Instagram followers. Um, and I think, as you're suggesting, I mean, the media environment's changed where. Photo, video, writing, I mean, you got to be good at all of it. And media organizations, I think, are 
are trying to figure it out just as we are as consumers. Um, you know, I never really envisioned a day where I would spend more time during the day using my thumb to slide up a vertical device to gather content than I would from watching a horizontal device that's stapled to a wall, right, that's barfing out information at me. But I don't see that as a negative. Uh, I'd rather have control of my information, view it from my, from my phone and get it quickly and get it right and get it accurate and have it be compelling than be completely dependent than some voice box in my house that's today, in today's world, yelling at you. <laughs> Every time I turn on cable, it's just like, you know, let's have a panel of people screaming at you. Uh, it's, it's almost like mobile devices have become strangely, like, more personal to the user. Yes. Like, it's, I'm, I'm just saying it's... Intensely personal. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's, you know, we're always on our phones. Always, I'm constantly on it. Um, all right, so over the past couple of years, the environmental movement has been working to become more diverse and representative of the people that are most impacted by environmental issues. However, as usual, the media has not done the best job of showcasing the minority activists and leaders who have been working hard to protect the, our environment. Uh, this is, oh, are we, are we there? All right. So uh, this is a picture of uh, a group of young environmentalist activists. Um, in the center there is uh, Greta Thunberg. And um, on the far left, right, this is, le this is your left, yeah, OK. <laughs> on the far left is um, Vanessa Nakati, who was cropped out of a photo that was taken of her with Thunberg and a couple other, as you see, young activists. Um, how has the conversation around climate change systematically excluded people of color from leadership and created artificial or unnecessary boundaries? Wow, that's a very <laughs> intense question. It's a big question. I mean, the whole environmental movement was founded off of racist practices. I mean, going back to even the conservation movement, the creation of our national parks um, was a result of pushing indigenous people off their lands and forcing them to lose access to all their hunting grounds, their ancestral burial grounds. Um, and indigenous people continue to face this today by energy companies and development projects. But even now we see a lack of representation among environmental groups, you know, some of like the big ones, Sierra Club, the Nature Conservation, the Nature Conservation, Conservancy, the Nature Conservancy, I always think of it as TNC. <laughs> There's still like serious lack of representation, representation within those groups um, of people of color, especially in higher positions. Um, what's really dope though is, as you're seeing in this photo, the original photo, um, youth are really coming through and kind of changing the game across the environmental movement. Um, Youth organizers, in a way that I think is quite unprecedented in the environmental movement, are centering youth of color, indigenous youth, and really propelling them to the forefront of the movement in a way that the environmental movement has never done. And quite frankly, the adults in those rooms need to learn a lot from these kids who are just completely transforming conversations around the climate crisis. Um, even, you know, young white girls like Greta, who I think get, has received a lot of slack for being this you know, blue-eyed white European girl at the forefront of this movement, has been very clear in advocating for youth of color and 
going to indigenous lands to help bring them to the spotlight, but also kind of share some of hers, um, which I think is incredibly important in the movement. But that being said, the greater environmental movement has a long way to go, I think, for a long time it's prioritized wildlife and sort of this disconnected environment from people and the people who are suffering at the hands of environmental contamination, environmental pollution, um, and for a really long time, we're unwilling to bring those problems into the environmental movement. And for a long time, we weren't willing to include that among environmental issues. Um, but people are calling them out on it, myself included, <laughs> and they're being, they're forced to now address these issues. And maybe there's a bit of like tokenizing happening with these organizations, um, but I think they're finally coming to terms with they can't keep operating this way if they wanna be taken seriously and accomplish their goal of so-called climate justice, which is securing the protections for the people on the front lines of this crisis. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm probably not the best person to speak on this topic. Um, this is an intensely important one to me, though. And um, you mentioned a few organizations where this is an issue. It's an issue in higher ed as well, where I come from. I mean, far too many of the environmental studies majors look just like me. Um, and that's not good enough, obviously. Um, luckily, we have more cameras, too, to point this bullshit out, right? To call out these kinds of edits, um, which I don't know who edited that, so it's difficult to say, but... Um, you know, I think as well, the question around who's a leader and who's in that leadership position really, really matters. Uh, at an upcoming event we're putting on, uh, there's a person that I've, I've come to know a little bit uh, who's the head of sustainability at Comcast, NBC Universal. She's this Korean-American woman, badass. And she wants to talk about diversity and leadership and sustainability. And in particular, you know, how to encourage um, more voices to be part of the conversation, be part of the solution, and be part of leadership positions in that regard. So I think um, if you know, you're somebody like me in a leadership position too, it's making sure that I create a platform and I have a place that is not only inclusive, but creates opportunities for those voices to truly be heard. Um, you know, not just to check a box, but to really give profile. Thank you. So what's a story that is not receiving the coverage that it deserves? I think that the story that needs more attention is this incredible movement in Canada by indigenous peoples to block trains uh, that are transporting oil and gas infrastructure. This is the Wet'suwet'en people, um, and they are trying to protect their lands from oil and gas infrastructure, and they have been for years, and finally they are getting attacked by police and being arrested and facing uh, police violence uh, for simply trying to protect their lands, which they've already lost too much of. I'm not on the beat every day, 
So it's sort of hard for me to answer that question. Um, you know, I continue to firmly believe that the story that we just have to continue to hammer is the climate story. We're putting way too much carbon in the atmosphere. Uh, that spans across 100 different issues and industries and people. Um, we're clearly not doing a good enough job, right? We don't have policies that reflect that. We don't have public conversations that reflect that yet in full. So, um, again, it's sort of hard when I'm not on the daily beat to, to answer that question. But, but even these like, daily issues ultimately are about <laughs> adding more carbon to the atmosphere. They are. That's what I'm, That's, yeah. I mean, it's land rights, but it's also the climate crisis at large. If you yeah. build these oil and gas pipelines, that is just adding to the climate crisis at a time when we're supposed to be transitioning off of these fuels. Um, and obviously it intersects with a whole bunch of other issues when people aren't given consent um, to what's happening on their lands. Uh, but at the heart of it is the climate crisis. And if we keep building these things, then what are we actually working toward? And we don't have a fancy machine as these companies love to assume is gonna exist in the future that can just suck carbon out of the air. Um, and that's what they're Or a new planet on. to just show up on and invade right now, which I think is also <laughs> silly. It's going to get depressing. <laughs> so, yeah. Isn't it already depressing? Yeah. <laughs> We're going to get more depressing. So, reporting has shown that fossil fuel companies such as ExxonMobil have known about climate change for the past half century, yet they didn't do anything about it. In fact, they actively began to sow doubt in the eyes of the public that it was humans who were causing the warming of our planet. The fossil fuel industry quickly sees the narrative, essentially baking skepticism and mistrust into the science from day one. How does the media help regain control of the narrative, and what can we do as storytellers and individuals to change this narrative? I don't know how many of you all read Emily Atkin. She's the most incredible environmental journalist out there, in my opinion, right now, and all of her reporting is pretty much targeting fossil fuel companies and just hitting on the point that fossil fuel companies made this mess, not me, not you, not any of us in this room. We can, you know, obviously our individual emissions are important, but if fossil fuel companies keep doing what they're doing, then it doesn't matter what the rest of us do. And I think as you know, members of the media, it's our job to call it out as much as possible. Um, we at Earther try to report on the environmental crisis with a systemic lens. Um, we really, really, really hate it when presidential candidates get on the debate stage and they're asked, such as Cory Booker was previously, uh, are you a vegan to save the planet? And it's like, you know, kudos to people who don't eat meat, but that's not gonna save the planet ultimately if fossil fuel companies keep doing what they're doing. Um, so I think we as media need to call it out and talk about the environmental crisis from a more holistic, systemic lens, looking at the bigger contributors to 
climate change, such as fossil fuel companies, such as the agricultural industry, and stop shaming people for the individual choices they make and alienating them along the way so that fewer actually want to join in changing the world. So part of the reason why we know that fossil fuel companies did this is journalism. Woo! Right? news. Yeah, and that's right. <laughs> and so, yeah, th it's part of our responsibility to do the digging and in my case, I guess, empower and create a structure that helps the next generation of journalists and young storytellers do the digging to expose this shit, right? Um, that's the only way we can hold companies, governments, everything else accountable. So, um, you know, we got to continue telling the story is the bottom line there and keep digging. You asked earlier, like, what's one of the most undertold stories? And this just reminded me. I think that one of the most undertold stories is the fossil fuel propaganda machine that continues today. The American Petroleum Institute just launched, like, a billion-dollar campaign to talk about we love climate change and we want to solve it too and advocating for natural gas and natural gas gas <laughs> and it's just incredible how much they've infiltrated literally everything people are suing fossil fuel companies for false advertising because they're claiming they are trying to combat climate change meanwhile they're the ones like fueling it um, and I think that's another story that doesn't get enough attention because media companies are often getting ad revenue from these companies, oftentimes they're in the pockets of these companies and um, going toe to toe with BP or Exxon is not a small thing. And there are many youth right now who are literally forming campaigns around getting fossil fuel dollars out of politicians, out of UN conferences. The last COP was sponsored by Spain's largest polluter, which is absurd. Um, and they're willing to put themselves out there. And for some of these youth who are from like the global south, you know, stepping up to these major companies can literally be a, a matter of life and death because environmental defenders in parts of the world get murdered at ridiculous rates, more so than people have died fighting wars. Um, and they're willing to do that because it's their future on the line. And I think that's really, really admirable, really, really sad because I don't think any teenager should be having to step up to a multinational billion dollar corporation, um, corporations. But they're the ones who are doing this, and if we don't stop them, then we're all fucked, quite literally. <laughs> um, sorry, but you said a key word in the whole climate change fight. Uh, can you explain Global South? Yes, the Global South refers to uh, what many people might refer to as like third world nations, um, underdeveloped countries. Uh, I think you know many African nations, parts of Southeast Asia. Um, you know, nations in Central America, such as El Salvador, where my family's from. Um, and these are the places that are often going to face some of the highest risk from climate change just because of the coincidental geographic location um, where they are, but also because there's so, there's so much poverty there and there's uh, often poor infrastructure that when certain extreme weather events occur, they're at least prepared to uh, deal with it either through like poor evacuation plans, but also poor infrastructure that exacerbates situations that maybe wouldn't otherwise be so bad, like proper sewage, for instance. Um, yeah, and this, the Global South, I think, needs to be at like the front of the conversation when we talk about the climate crisis, because we talk, you know, for us here in this room, it's like 
we don't have to worry about those impacts just yet, but for you know Indonesia or Mozambique where they're dealing with record-breaking weather events, that the crisis is here now. They're living through it and they're seeing people die just by numbers that we could never comprehend, you know? Um, and the stories on the climate crisis need to really focus, I think, on what's happening in the global south because people don't really click on stories about flooding in South Korea or Indonesia. Um, they barely even click on stories when there's flooding here. Like, there's flooding in the southeast right now in, I think, Mississippi, and no one's talking about it. Dan, did you have something to say? Because I saw you. I always have something. Okay. <laughs> well, no, I was thinking about some of the, like, undertold stories, right? Mm -hmm. And one I'm constantly thinking about is, who is going to own the renewable energy future? And at some level, we have to wonder, is it going to be the traditional fossil fuel company? Who, some of them own a lot of the technologies, patents, um, maybe the infrastructure to deploy that. I mean, I love the idea that maybe I just leased my last combustible engine vehicle so I can drive electric. But I'm also aware that the minute I own an electric vehicle, I'm plugging it into a system that's pretty much in my area, burning coal, provide it, right? So clearly their interest in our renewable energy future is around profit and profitability. And so I don't know that I have a, an, an answer, a solution, or even a coherent thought on it, but I do wonder, you know, who's going to own the renewable energy future, and is it going to look like the traditional system we've had which is largely based on profit. Just something to consider. Community-owned solar, man. Yeah. Microgrids. <laughs> Government utilities. Yes. <laughs> so a popular storyteller, for better or for worse, for worse, Rush Limbaugh, <laughs> one of the original podcasters, just won a Medal of Freedom. Wild. I know. <laughs> Limba is a conservative political commentator, author, and former television show host. He is best known as the host of his long-running radio show, The Rush Limbaugh Show, which entered national syndication on AM and FM radio stations in 1988. He's also known for super shitty views. For example, global warming is a religion. Only God can destroy Earth. <laughs> He's also responsible for shifting... Uh, conservative opinion to deny the existence of global climate change. So in the spirit of award show season, we have decided to award the two of you an award. <laughs> I, I left mine on that table, so I'm, I'm going to go get it. Dan, we'll start with you. Your award for the tightest pants in the room. Please. Thank you. Please give us an acceptance speech. That. <laughs> I'm, I'm literally speechless. Uh, you, you have to stand up. You have to stand up. Uh, I believe there was a segment one time on Saturday Night Live about tight pants. Yes? Got my tight pants on. No? Nobody knows what I'm talking about? Yes, right? This is vague. She knows. Um, are you already playing me off? Is that the music is? I don't know what to say, but in this effort in my mid-30s to identify with you 
Uh, even my partner, where did you go, that we were uh, writing headlines, we wore the same shoes. Uh, I proudly wear these pants to stand uh, with you as we try to fight this climate crisis. Yeah. And uh, for Yesenia, you get the award for environmental writer who drops the most F-bombs. Damn right. Thank you. I'd like to uh, thank you all for drinking with me tonight. And I'd like to thank the creator of the F word, AKA fuck, because it's given me a lot of uh, power in my writing. And uh, I'm very proud of my usage. Thank you. Nice. Somebody created it. <laughs> All right, so we're going to talk about leaving. How do environmental stories like leave us? Like, how do they impact us either positively or negatively, and how we react to those stories? So um, this is for Yesenia. Um, you tend to end your articles with a positive look on the future. Is that a conscious decision, or yeah? All right, I'm going <laughs> to be really honest right now. Usually, when I write my stories, I have a very short amount of time to write them. Um, and I always struggle with the ending because the ending is always the hardest part for me. The ending and the beginning, but I think the ending more so because I, I think that it resonates more with people if they get that far. So it's not always intentional. Usually when I write, I'm just kind of like, once I'm done with the facts, facts, I just kind of write whatever just comes out of my fingers. Um, but it makes me feel a little better when I write a really sad story to end on a note that's either like, if we don't do X, Y, Z, then X, you know this will happen. Um, I think it's kind of selfish that I do it. It's mostly a thing for my own pleasure, more so than my readers. I don't know how effective it is, because it's kind of mm -hmm. bullshitty when you end on a happy note if the rest of your story is not very happy. What what's your what's the time limit for your like articles like getting them out because when we were like reading your stuff we noticed on Earther like there's like five articles on the same date <laughs> so we're like you were like pumping out articles like every like five hours or something yeah that's the life of a blogger man <laughs> um, it depends I mean I usually have a few hours to write like mm. short stories but then there are stories like the one I mentioned earlier that I have like the great privilege of spending months and months on, but typically that's because I'm spending so much time writing these like really short newsy articles that I don't have the time to write the stuff I really want to write. Um, mm. But <coughs> yeah, usually like two articles a day, try to get maybe have like four hours to write one if my editor is being generous. It's a lot. Jesus. It's a lot, and it's a lot of content to absorb every day. <laughs> <laughs> um, Dan, so the whole shtick Planet Forward is shtick, shtick. You know the shtick. You know inspiring Ooh. stories to move the planet forward, yes. right? <laughs> so, from your experience, what do you think people respond better to, the positive or the negative narratives? Positive, positive. Okay. I will endlessly defend the positive narrative on this because um, we are a hopeful species. I mean, we're capable of bad stuff, and oftentimes negative it's it's like a report card right if you came home with all a's but in math you have a d what are your parents going to focus on 
Well, my parents math. usually just, they knew I was, I stalked that math. So they're like, ah, <laughs> ah it's whatever. Well. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. But the, <laughs> damn, I thought that was such a good analogy. But the point is, I guess like our news media loves covering the negative headline, right? So somebody's got to cover the positive story. I mean, I like, I just think us as humans, it's, Kurt's going to get mad at me for saying this, but, like, our MO as a project is what we call the definition of storytelling, right? It's compelling characters overcoming obstacles to achieve a worthy outcome. Those stories, that, is, that applies to so many stories that have ever been told and some of the best stories we, that have ever been told. But that worthy outcome is how we want stories to resolve. And ultimately, I'm bullish about our planet's future because... I think we're capable of doing something good. I think we're at this period of life, we're, we're fighting it, we're trying to change the narrative on it, we're trying to reframe it. Um, but I think that's sort of, I think it's a good thing and I, I wanna see more positive narratives. Mm -hmm. If it's overly negative, what are we gonna do? We're just gonna go, well, we're screwed and not do anything. So there we go. I don't know how coherent that thought was, but it was. <laughs> I liked it. In my head, everybody's standing <laughs> up. <laughs> Stand up and clap. Positive stories. <laughs> All right. We're, we're basically finishing up now. Um, like I said before, I found out I was hosting this yesterday. Charles is sick, so I had to, you know, be the responsible one and uh, do it and host. So this is his script. So I'm going to say that I'm going to try to do my best Charles impression by saying this right here. <clears throat> Our country's history has been marked by bold men with grand ideas daring to go where no one has gone before. Nobody thought we would win the revolution, the space race, the original New Deal, the civil rights movement, the list goes on. Here we are, our best when we are bold and look towards the future with hope and with action that benefit the most people. The cost of being bold and brave has never stopped us in the past. I believe that this narrative could be the way for us to mobilize a movement to get this done. Right on. Okay, so thank you all for thank you all so much for coming out and participating in these conversations. I would also like to thank our panelists, Yasini and Dan, our producer Kurt, and our awesome team for making this possible. I believe that scientists possessing the skills to communicate their research and with their peers is drastically important. Most importantly, to stretch these conversations across boundaries and step up to include ethics in often underrepresented groups and individuals. Practicing these strategies, I think, can all around make us more understanding and progress in doing good for the environment. Thanks so much for having me. And as usual, thanks Oliver at least for the space. Go check out Pod for the Planet. Like, comment, subscribe. Go check it out wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you, Yasinia and Dan. Have a good night. Woo!